I'm glad you're here. I'm really super excited that New Life Downtown is going to be doing the community Bible experience. Um, I think it's a revolutionary kind of way of experiencing the Bible, that most people have never had anything quite like that before, where you're reading the Bible together, you're reading it big, you know, 10 to 12 pages a day, you're reading in community, um, and when you get together, it's not Bible study, it's more like book club, where you just get to come together and talk. There aren't right and wrong answers, and you're not filling in the blank on a curriculum, um, but you're talking about what you've been reading in depth, and you've been reading a Bible that's been redesigned for reading. So we're going to talk about that some more today. But first, I wanted to just give you kind of an overview of what these four weeks will be, so you kind of know what the journey is going to be, and then we'll talk about our topic specifically for this week. Basically, what I'm going to try to do is give you four weeks to a new Bible paradigm, all right? Because, you know, my work at Biblica, part of my job is to keep up with the research of what's happening with the Bible in America, particularly also the world. Um, But in America, it's not a good story. There was a study released this last year called The Bible in American Life by the University of Indiana. They have a special center there for the study of religion and American culture. So they released this in-depth study on what do Americans actually do with their Bibles. And it made me very sad. Because I've been working for a quarter of a century at a Bible organization and realizing, like, there's a huge problem of the connection with American people in the Bible. Only one out of two Americans ever open a Bible outside of a church service in a whole year. So 50% of Americans are out right away. So 50% of Americans open the Bible at least one time outside of a church service in a whole year. Well, that could be, think about it, that could be one, one day you opened and you read one verse, and that would count as you're in the top 50% of Bible readers in America. This is not high-level engagement. Now, it's true that 9% of Americans read the Bible daily, or at least say they do in the survey. But it turns out that most of that 9% live in the South. They're African Americans, they're Protestant, they're rural, and they're poor. So unless you're a black, poor woman, Protestant, reading a King James Bible in the South, most likely you're not part of that 9%. Now, I know this group. Of course, this is an exceptional church. So this church, of course, is not like the rest of America. And I really mean that seriously. I know you're not. I know this is a more engaged, spiritually, congregation here. This is a vibrant community of Christ in this place. But the organization I'm working for, we're trying to change the fact that almost everybody else in America virtually ignores the Bible. This is, to me, a great pain and a great sadness. Because the Bible is a gift to us. And, and there's a story, we think, behind what's happened to the Bible that has made the disconnect so prevalent in our society. We think that part of that story has to do with something that we're going to talk about this week, and that is the very form of the Bible itself. So the first week, we're going to talk about what, what is the Bible and why does it look the way it looks? What do we think the Bible actually is And then the rest of the three weeks, we're going to talk about what are we supposed to do with the Bible. And and if we're good, creational monotheists, you're like, what in the world is that? 
If we believe that there's one true God and He made the world, then we have to pay attention to how form and content work together. This is a big deal in Christianity. We're not Gnostics. We don't think that just ideas matter and the material world is irrelevant. Gnosticism said all that matters is ideas and what you think about things. And, and the way things look and feel and the, the physical world, the way we interact together in person, face to face, all this stuff is irrelevant. What matters is just closing your eyes and thinking the right kind of thoughts and hopefully you'll die soon so that your spirit can go to this other realm and not even mess with the physical world anymore. That's Gnosticism. But Christianity has always said, God saves what he made. There's a close relationship between creation and salvation. And then we think, okay, that's what it means to be a good creational monotheist. We believe in one true God, and he's the creator. Now think about that idea in connection with the Bible. What if the form of the Bible matters? What if it matters what we see when we open it up? Or when we, when we push the button and get version on our, on our iPhone? I mean, does it matter what the Bible looks like? We say it does. Because implicitly, whenever we see something in our world, a tangible physical object, the signals we get in our brain from what we see or we touch or we hear, they send signals to us that say, this is what this object is, and then we start to make conclusions about what we're supposed to do with it. So we're going to talk about the journey of what the Bible was when it was first came to birth in this world. What was the Bible? How did it come together? What journey did it take historically to end up with what we call the modern reference Bible, which is a particular cultural form and presentation of the Bible, but it's not what the Bible always was, and it's not what the Bible has to be. The Bible has changed a lot through its history, and we're going to talk about that journey. That will be this week. Next week, we're going to talk about the fact that the Bible is a whole library of books, and therefore, the, thing, the first thing that we do when we come to the Bible is we have to stop snacking. We have to start feasting. Philip Yancey has said, you know what? American Christians are mostly trying to make a spiritual living off of eating Bible McNuggets. All right? We get a little verse here, a little fragment there, we don't even care that much all the time whether we're reading it in context, that we understand what that little piece of information first meant. We treat the Bible as if it's a spiritual vending machine, and we can just get a little piece of it and live off of that. We're going to make the, the contention next week that the thing we're supposed to do is feast on the Bible. It's a whole meal. It's meant to be taken in holistically. And we're going to talk about the undiscovered gifts of reading whole books at a time. What we're hoping, one of the things that happens through the community Bible experience is that people will start to develop new habits. And one habit would be, instead of jumping around every day, you know, I've seen them, I work at Bible organizations, I've been in the Bible world a long time, this daily manna, this verse of the day thing where one day you're in John and then you're jumping to one from Psalms and then you're in Philippians and you're getting a verse every day and you're doing your devotional. What if instead you were reading continuously through whole books. It takes a few minutes to read many of Paul's letters, like the whole letter to the Philippians. It's not a big deal to read through the whole thing. But how often do we do that? So we're going to talk about what happens when we feast on the Bible instead of just snack on the Bible. The third week, we're going to talk about how all these individual books 
come together into the grand narrative of God in the world. And how they form a part of that story. And we're going to talk about what that story actually is. Because for much of the church's history, that story hasn't always been told with great accuracy to what the Bible is actually talking about. So we're going to talk about the six acts of the drama, the story, the narrative that's within the pages of the Bible. How all the books, this library of books, come together to tell a single story of God's redemption and recovery and restoration of everything that he made in the first place. Remember, creation and salvation are always like this. God saves what he made. He doesn't give up on what he made and try to just save part of us or something like that. He saves his world. So we're going to talk about that story. And then in the fourth week, we're going to talk about how this story is unfinished. And so that one really, really important concept that we have to try to grab a hold of, and that kind of is the end game of this whole Bible journey, is that we see that the story is unfinished, that we're invited into it. So the way to think of the Bible is it's this great story, but it's not just in the past. It's a story that continues to this day. We are continuing to living out the story, particularly you could say of the book of Acts. We're, we're continuing, we're at that place in the story. It's after Jesus and his death and resurrection and ascension, and the new world has been born in this world, and now we're called to live out that same story in our time. So therefore, an even better word maybe than story for the Bible is the word drama. Because drama activates story. You know, if you write a play, if Shakespeare writes a play, you can sit and read it. People do in English classes, probably not unlike this one, and they read and discuss Shakespeare's play. But when does Shakespeare's play really become what he meant it to be? When somebody gets up on the stage and enacts it. They embody it. They live it out on the stage for everyone to see. A drama doesn't become what it's meant to be until it's actually engaged and activated and and brought to life by somebody doing what the drama says. So the Bible, even more than it's a story that we read, it's a drama that we're now called to live And we live at a certain place in that story after a whole bunch of stuff has already happened. So we have to start thinking of the the authority of the Bible. We've been taught to think of it as a reference book kind of an authority. What if we started thinking of it as narrative authority? How do we know how we're supposed to act on any given day as a follower of Jesus Christ? We we do that because we're so immersed in the story that's come before that we we know that we're continuing the story of the Bible. Some people wish you could go to the Bible and just get all the right answers. Like, we wish that the script of our lives was written there. and We could just, like, like look up. Well, when, when my boss does this and when I hate that, this is what, my, what Alex, my, my colleague, says here. He, he works with me at Biblica, and he's, he's saying, yeah, that's exactly what I need to know. I want to look up in the Bible. What do I do when my boss does something that I hate? Right? But the, he can look up for the Bible, and that answer is not there. What he gets is the story that came before Alex. And then he's saying, you have to live out that story in this time, and you have to improvise. And improvisation is not just a free-for-all where you do whatever you want. Improvisation in music, in drama, in comedy, if you've ever been to an improv club, improvisation is doing what's a a new thing at a new moment, but based on a deep understanding of what's come before. In music, it would be the rhythm, right, the key. You have to be tuned into that stuff in order to improvise. So we're going to talk about a vision of the, of the Christian life with the Bible that sees it as a drama that leads to us 
improvising the Christian life based on the story in the Bible. One of the best things I love about that vision is that it turns the Christian life away from being something of just mere rote obedience or just believing what I read there. Instead, it turns the Christian life into a work of art. So what you are doing with your life is creating a work of art because drama is in the fine arts. And if you're living your life as a drama based on the Bible, what you're doing is creating a new gift of beauty to give back to God based on the story that he's given us in the scriptures. So this is the journey we're on. We're going to start here, first base. What is the Bible? Why does it look the way it looks? What was the Bible? How did we get here? And is it okay to go back to something that's kind of an earlier, ancient future form of the Bible, if you will? We're going to talk about form. Then we'll talk about the library of books, the gift of reading whole books. Then we'll talk about the story. And then we'll talk about the drama. So this is a new Bible paradigm through form, library, story, and narrative. That's where we're headed. So, week one. What is the Bible? All right. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet. And he said to Jeremiah, take a scroll. Why don't we hand one of these out? You guys can just hand it around. This is a scroll that's made from actual papyrus plant that is not unlike, it's a short one, but it's not unlike the kind of scrolls that would have existed in the ancient world when the Bible was first written down. So the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah during the reign of King Jehoiakim in Judah. And the Lord said, take a scroll and write down on it every single word I have ever given you since the time of King Josiah about Judah, about Israel, and about all the nations that are around you. Write it down, because maybe if the people of Judah hear all your oracles... Everything, every word that I've given you since the beginning of your time of ministry for me, maybe then they will listen. Because I'm about to bring disaster on this land, and they're not listening to you. I'm going to give it one more shot, the Lord says to Jeremiah. So, think about all the words you've written, Jeremiah, and write them down on a scroll. Now, this is a very interesting moment in the Bible. I'm so glad that the Bible tells us this kind of behind-the-scenes story because it gives us a glimpse into what the Bible actually was at its birth and what it's become. One thing this tells us is that Jeremiah is not an author in the modern sense. Jeremiah didn't go sit out in the, in the cabin in the Colorado Rockies and go on a writer's retreat and write the book of Jeremiah. Right? This is not like being a modern author. You get the feeling from this passage, which is in the book of Jeremiah, this story about how the book came to be born, that Jeremiah has never written down a word in his life. So what has Jeremiah been doing? He's been out on the streets, kind of just meeting with the people at the city gate, going to the temple. He's been proclaiming orally the word of the Lord that God has given him in these different oracles about Judah, about Israel, about all the nations. So he hasn't written a thing. So what does Jeremiah do? He goes and finds Baruch, son of Neriah, the scribe, and Jeremiah dictated to him all the words he had ever said to the people of Judah. And Baruch the scribe writes them down, all of them. And you realize, wow, this is the print-on-demand technology of the ancient world. right? You get a scribe, they write down things by hand, and you get exactly one copy. 
So for the very first time in the world, there's a copy of the book of Jeremiah. All his oracles written in one place. And the Lord says, take those words and go and stand in the temple gate and read them to all the people. Jeremiah says to Baruch, I've been banished from the temple because the king doesn't like what I've been saying. So you go and read these words, the whole scroll, the whole thing, read them to the people. So Baruch goes and he does that. He stands at the new gate of the temple in Jerusalem and he reads the words, all the oracles of Jeremiah the prophet. The king's officials are there listening. They listen to the whole thing and they say, whoa, wait just a minute. This is, the king needs to know about this. So they tell Baruch, first of all, what is this you're reading? Did Jeremiah dictate this to you? They know where this stuff came from. So Baruch says, yes, Jeremiah, these are the words of Jeremiah the prophet, all of them, from the Lord to these people, and they're hearing them all. And the officials say, you wait here. We're going to take the scroll. The king needs to know about this. So one of the officials goes and takes the scroll puts it aside in the room, and they go and tell King Jehoiakim, these are the words that Jeremiah has been reading to these people, all of them. One of the other officials says to Baruch, um, if I were you, I would go and hide right about now. Um, so go take Jeremiah and disappear, because the king's going to be looking for you momentarily. Sure enough, the king, first of all, says, bring me the scroll and have it read to me. It's the ninth month of the fifth year of Jehoiakim, of his reign. And the, the scroll is being read to the king while he's sitting in his winter apartment. You kind of picture him with his feet up, and there's a little fire pot going. So he's just sitting back, and he says, read the scroll to me. And so as he's reading, the scribe is reading to the king, he takes the scroll about every three or four columns, it says. And he takes his little penknife, and he cuts off the columns that have just been read, and he throws them into the fire. And he says, keep reading. And he listens to the whole scroll. But every three or four columns, he's cutting it up and throwing it into the fire. So when the official gets to the end, there is no more book of Jeremiah in the world. The whole thing has just been burned up. The whole thing. Jeremiah's a big book. So there was one copy of one book of the Bible, and now that's gone. So the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah, and he says, Let's do this all over again. Go get Baruch the scribe, dictate to him every word I ever gave you, and have him write it down on the scroll. And they did that. And then the Lord says to Jeremiah, and by the way, tell Jehoiakim, because he's not listening to any of this, even my last desperate attempt to change his heart and mind and, and the direction of his life and his leading of this country, because he won't listen to me, that his line is about to end, that I am going to end it for him and for his kids in terms of ruling this country. And the, the words of these prophecies are most definitely going to come true. And this was your last chance. So that's the story of the book of Jeremiah. Now, think of that story and think of other stories like that for every single book in the Bible. Not somebody sitting down and writing a book. Right? What was Paul? He sat down and he wrote, or he had his scribe write. Only a few places do we read where Paul says, I'm writing this part in my own hand. Normally, somebody else is writing as he's dictating. But were those books? Were those things he's going to publish to sell in the temple bookstore? You know? No. 
He's writing letters to congregations. The Bible's rooted in the real life of people and God's attempt to reach them through real, regular human means. A letter from your leader to your congregation, and then when, when, it, when that letter is delivered to your church, and there's exactly one copy, somebody stands up in the house church, and they read through the whole letter that's from the leader, and that's how the Bible was born. The stories of Jesus were handed down orally long before they were ever written down. Oral tradition was a huge deal in the ancient world. We've neglected this capacity, first because of printing, now even more so with electronic media. Who needs to know anything anymore? You don't have to know your own phone number. You don't have to know your wife's birthday. You can look up everything by Googling it. You don't have to remember anything. Our brains are turning to mush because of this. This is what Plato said. He was against printing because it meant that people wouldn't remember things anymore. Right? Because in the ancient world, that's all they had. So they exercised that brain muscle. They had a phenomenal capacity to remember things. This is how the stories of the ancient world were handed down in cultures, by oral tradition. And, and I don't know, I have two grandkids now, and it's so fun to start reading them those little books again, like I did with my boys when they were little. And you know what's funny? They love those stories, even though you just read it to them you know, in the morning, they want it again in the evening. They heard it yesterday, they want it again. Have you ever tried to change the story that you're reading to a small child? They know those words, and if you change it or you try to shortchange it and say, you know, to yourself, I'm not really into reading this whole book again because I just read it to them a little while ago, so I'm going to like skip to the end. They're like, no, 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 what about this? You're skipping this part. That's oral tradition. That's remembering the way the story is supposed to go and calling somebody on it when they don't tell it right. That's how it was with the stories of Jesus. Those communities could remember the words of Jesus and they continued to share them. And when somebody came along and told them wrong, they knew right away that wasn't the way the tradition went. Oral tradition was a strong and a reliable thing. All the stories of Israel going back in the ancient world, this was oral tradition. The Bible was born as a living thing. It was, it was spoken and heard more than it was written at, at its birth. So that's a huge point to just grab a hold of. It's organic and it's holistic. Things Nobody knew. I mean, there was no such thing as a Bible verse yet. We're going to hear about that journey in just a minute. But there was no such thing as doing verse of the day or daily manner. All they knew is when the community came together, nobody had their own copies of anything. There was one copy, maybe, eventually, for the whole community. They would come together and somebody would recite from memory, or they would read if they had a document, an early scroll document, and they would just hear the word in community, and then they would respond. This is how the Bible was at its birth. So the thing we do with the Bible today is very different from what the Bible was originally. But the Bible did come to be written. So scribes come into the story. They start recording things and keeping things on scrolls. It's interesting. There isn't any technology yet that allows them to start to keep all of it together. So the books are based on individual scrolls, and they're kept kind of in a cabinet but they're individual books that are just held together. That's their sacred writings. And they knew which ones belonged in and which ones belonged out. There were other stories going around. They didn't accept them. They accepted the ones that were part of their tradition as, that had come from the Lord. So the Bible gets to be collected. And it's interesting. The first thing we get is before we can even get physical collections of books, you get, start to get lists of books. And it's interesting that the order isn't always the same. 
The birth of the Bible happened by books being collected into bigger groups. But it's funny, those, those groups start, sort of stayed the same. You had the Torah, was an early and, and a sacred collection, the five books, that was not messed with. But you had the prophets, you had the writings. But within those categories, with the Torah being the exception, within those categories, the order of books could vary. They weren't always the same. And this followed through, even when they started to get better technology that allowed them to actually include more than one book on one piece of writing, the order wasn't always the same. So in the case of the New Testament, there was Gospels, there was a collection of Paul's letters, and then there was a collection of all the other letters. It's interesting. Within those categories, the books aren't always the same. It's not always Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Sometimes Mark would go first and John would be second. They would change the order. Different parts of the church liked the Bible in different orders. You may have noticed that in the New Testament that you're getting for this campaign, the order of books is different. To jump ahead just a minute, it wasn't until the time of the printing press that our modern order of books kind of got frozen. I mean, if you're going to mass produce books, think about what a revolution that was for the Bible. Instead of every single copy of the Bible having to be handwritten, suddenly you had mass production of books in the printing press. It kind of froze the moment of, well, it's this particular order of books, and that's why that's so widespread today. But the Christian tradition, for much longer than the 15th century when the printing press happened, was for there to be, continue to be a variety of book orders. There is no one book order to the Bible. That's the right order that fell from heaven, saying this is how the books are to be put together. The church has done different things with that. So there's freedom there to put the books in an order that we think makes sense. And just to make a little apologetic for the books of the Bible that you have, one of the things that happened in the Bible is they started collecting books by length. And we're, we're sitting here saying, maybe that's not the most helpful thing for readers. Maybe Paul's letters from biggest to smallest doesn't really help readers understand much about Paul. What if you put them in the order that he wrote them? Hmm. Now you can start to see the journey that Paul's on with his churches and why he had to deal with different subjects as his life progressed and as his churches grew up a little bit. Same thing with the prophets. The prophets are in order in most Bibles, the Septuagint order from big books and then the, the, the little ones. Not helpful. What if you did the prophets in the order that they spoke their messages to Israel? Historically. So you could trace the journey of the prophets historically. What if... The kinds of books that are written are, go together. So wisdom books, what if they were collected? Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. What if song lyric books were put together? Psalms, Lamentations, Song of Songs. This is what the books of the Bible does. We've revised the book order because we think that that's a more helpful arrangement for readers. By the way, in your New Testaments, we've got kind of four mini New Testaments. We have the four Gospels at the first of a group, but each Gospel is with the set of writings that most naturally go with it. Right? So Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. So we put Luke and Acts together. By the way, Luke is very unhappy somewhere that somebody thought it was a good idea to put John between his two books. Right? So Luke writes Luke and he writes the book of Acts and he makes them so that they work together. Jesus journeys to Jerusalem and then the gospel journeys from Jerusalem out to the rest of the world. There's a huge, beautiful story in the combined two-volume work of Luke and Acts. And it doesn't make sense to split that apart. It just doesn't. And I know Luke's upset about that somewhere. 
So that's, that's really next week's lesson about the beauty that we find when we read the books the way God made them. By the way, a lot of books, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Chronicles, these are only called First and Second because they couldn't fit all of them onto a single scroll. Scrolls were of a certain length and they could only get so many words on them before the scroll didn't work anymore as a tool. So they would start another scroll with the same book. And what they would do to actually show that those books combined is when they started the second scroll, they would go back a paragraph or two and start that copy again and then continue the story. So you knew that they belonged together because they would write the words over again. You can actually see this in our Bibles by looking at the end of Second Chronicles and the beginning of Ezra. Those books were once single books because they overlap by about two paragraphs. So Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah was actually a single kind of story in the first Bible. So we're off track a little bit. I should keep track of the time, make sure we get through our, our story. So what happened to the Bible? These collections started happening, right? We collect the Bible into these groups. Early in the Christian era, there's a new technology that enters the scene. Instead of scrolls, people start doing the codex form, which is what we would call a Bible. It's, it's a regular book that has pages and leaves rather than a rolled up scroll. Now the paper in those Bibles wasn't really paper. Right? They're using animal skins and other things, so it's really thick material. So even then, they can't fit very much of it together. You'll find books of the Gospels together. You'll find collections of, John, of Paul's letters together and the other letters into single volumes. But they, the technology doesn't exist to get all of the Bible into a single printed book. That's not going to come until later in the game. So again, the books are collected. The order varies. But now we're starting to get book form, not just scroll form. Now, a very interesting thing starts to happen. Once we get these books forms, the codex form of the Bible, the scribes, who have always been the ones making the copies of the books, when very few people in a culture could read or write, the scribes who are copying those books, they start to mess with stuff a little bit. It's very interesting. They're like, you know, their job is to write the words. Some of them can't resist doing things in the margins. Right? They make their little commentary. It's the first kind of time when the boundaries of the Bible kind of get broken and the single manuscript or book that holds those pages of sacred writings starts to get other people's stuff in there. And their intentions are to be helpful. They're trying to say, well, you know what? This is kind of like that other passage. If you're in Jeremiah, this is kind of reminds us of the one over in Isaiah. Or if you're in Micah, you say, this reminds me of that other one over there. So they might start making their little commentary and then they start putting other marks in the text, breathing marks, because the early church would have public readings of Scripture and they would give helps to the readers, like where you should stop and breathe. Because the writing material was at a premium, they did this thing called scripto continuo, where they wouldn't put spaces between, between words. So when you see an ancient manuscript, you see a bunch of Greek letters, for, exa for example, for the New Testament, and there are no spaces. Have you ever read English text where there's no punctuation, and no spaces. Well, if you're going to do a public reading of Scripture in your house church, you need to read that ahead of time so you know where the word breaks are before you get up there and try to stumble and figure out where the words are. That, that's a hard process to do. It's because writing material was rare and it was expensive. So they're reading these ahead of time. Well, those scribes start to give those readers helps by giving them little breathing marks and starting to put a few spaces in some places like where the reading would begin and where it would end, for instance, by just adding a little extra space. So we're starting to get things that are messed with in the Bible. 
But then this little thing about messing with the Bible becomes an avalanche. And suddenly we got people like numbering those sections that are the daily readings or the, the weekly readings in the churches. And then you get people adding like section headings that are the commentary. Like this is what this section is about. And then you get, you get more and more stuff coming into these Bibles and they're starting to look more and more complicated. It wasn't until the 13th century, however, that our modern, our current version of chapter numbers was inserted in the Bible. Now before this, there were other versions and that one didn't take hold right away and like everybody started following it. So there were versions of Matthew with 68 chapters. Mark with 52 So the numbers, they would vary because people are just, you know, they're doing their own thing with the Bible and there are no chapter and verse numbers. They just exist as holistic, organic, literary documents at first. And now people are starting to to do things to the Bible in order to make it more usable. I mean, the intentions are all good, right? Stephen Langdon, the guy who created our modern system that we use in in our Bibles of the chapter system, What was he doing that for? He was doing that because he was working and working with others who were doing Bible commentaries. And if you don't have some section of finding passages, it can be really tedious to write a commentary and people don't know what passage you're necessarily talking about. So if you have a number of a whole section, then you can say, this is my commentary on Romans section 12. No verse numbers yet, just chapters. It was because of a reference work that chapters numbers were invented. And then 300 years later, in the 16th century, another guy, Robert Estian, said, you know what, I want to make a Bible concordance. And so chapter numbers are not precise enough for me. I need smaller units of measurement so I can find where individual words are more quickly. So he took a Greek New Testament and said, let's do verse numbers. For the Old Testament, all he had to do All he had to do was number the breathing marks that were in the old Hebrew manuscripts, but then he created new verse numbers for the New Testament. And and for the first time, we get a chapter and a verse, New Testament, Bible. This is the 16th century. I mean, just think about this. For most of its history, the church has had a Bible that was not chaptered and versed. How is that possible? How can you use a Bible that doesn't have chapters and verses? It's unusable. Right? It's impossible. The church survived somehow. It's a miracle. We believe in miracles. What the, what's happening is, is that the Bible is being turned into a reference book. These two innovations, chapters and verses, were created so that people could create reference books for scholars with the Bible. But somebody made the huge mistake of saying, this is the way every Bible should be. So that instead of having a Bible that people can read, and it's interesting, these changes came in the same historical period as the printing press came. So the printing presses, within 100 years, they're printing chapter and verse Bibles, not organic, holistic, literary Bibles that people can read. So what's happening is right at the moment where the the Bibles are being printed and the average person, for the first time in history, can start to have their own copy of the Bible, what form of the Bible are they getting? a modern reference edition that was first intended to be for scholars, for special tools, concordances and commentaries. Now everybody gets a Bible for the first time, and it's a Bible that's that's into little pieces. It's interesting, this is a copy of the Geneva Bible. 
that what they did at first is they made every single verse a new paragraph. So there is no more poetry, there's no more prose, there's no more wisdom, there's no more songs, there's no more letters. You can't see any of that. All you see is a list on the page of individually numbered statements, each one indented as a separate paragraph. What does that form? Remember what I said about form and content working together in God's good creation? What does this form of the Bible tell us? It does not tell you to read. And so, in fact, in the modern period, people have increasingly moved away from reading the Bible. It's just a fact. Overwhelmingly now, what people do with the Bible, when they do anything with it, which is already a smaller group of people, what they do is they use it as a reference book to look up this or to look up that. What's the number one use of electronic Bibles? Bible Gateway, Uversion, whatever, Bible apps. People do topical searches. It's the single biggest thing people do with, with these electronic Bibles. Do people read them at length? Do they read whole books? They don't. So what we've done in the modern period is we've changed the Bible into something that looks and feels like a reference book, and then we're surprised. I'm completely shocked. People would use a book that looks like a reference book as a reference book. Really? What we're trying to do is get back to an earlier form of the Bible that shows us. What if the Bible you read didn't have these additions from later in history? What if a letter looked like a letter? Maybe you'd read it that way. What if a song looked like a song? And you could see the Hebrew parallelism right there on the page. One line working with another line, because Hebrew poetry wasn't about rhyme, it was about parallelism, lines working together to do things. That was the way the message worked. What if we could recover, restore, re-experience the Bible in a form that's closer to what it originally was? This is why the books of the Bible that you're going to be experiencing in your community Bible experience doesn't look like the modern reference Bible. Right? All this, this clutter that we put to our Bibles, which I call biblio-clutter, the phrase I like to use is we've been bamboozled by biblio-clutter. Right? Because it's overwhelmed us. Every single one was added with good intentions. People who put the Bible in two columns, they're trying to save space on printing. I know because I print Bibles. Section headings, right? Commentary. It's like watching a movie with somebody who, who's seen the movie before. And before every scene, they elbow you and they say, oh, this is where... And they tell you what's going to happen before it even happens. And sometime, at some point you say, would you please be quiet? So I can see what's going to happen for myself in this movie. But when we say, you know, Absalom dies before the story where he's actually killed, like, what is that? We don't need to know that. <laughs> Let us experience the story on its own terms. We don't need to give away, or we don't, we don't need the commentary either of what some person's interpretation is of what, what's important about this next section. Let people read it and experience it for themselves. Section headings, verse numbers, cross-references, footnotes, I mean, when you open up the modern Bible, it's overwhelming to people how much stuff there is. And they just don't sit down and read it. We, there's a simplification process that needs to happen. We've overcomplexified the Bible. And the evidence is it's not working. I mean, you could say, well, it's okay if all the evidence was people are deeply engaged in the Scriptures and living their lives by the Scriptures. Maybe you'd say, well, all the additives have made a difference because people are well engaged, but they're not. We're losing Bible readers left and right, so there's no, there's no apologetic, there's no rationale for these additives anymore. They are, in fact, not helping people. They're stopping people from reading the Bible. 
So there's a new Bible. So form matters. I think my time is about up. I want to leave a little bit of time for questions. What we're going to do next week is say, okay, say we, we're not sure about you yet, Glenn, in this new theory, but let's, let's give you the benefit of the doubt for the moment. If we were to read the Bible this way, as this collection of holistic literary documents that God inspired, there's a reason why God inspired songs. Songs, you don't read songs like, you don't read poetry like you read historical narrative. It's a different thing. You don't read it with the same interpretive rules. So let's say we follow your idea that these books are supposed to be read as the kind of literature that God actually inspired. If we read letters as instructions from leaders to their congregations, what would happen to us with the Bible? What we're going to look at next week is all the undiscovered gifts that are there that have been plastered over with all this biblioclutter for all this time. What are these undiscovered gifts within the Bible that we have no chance of seeing in our modern Bible? I'm telling you already, it's incredible what is there. There are structures and amazing things happening in books that the modern Bible doesn't let us see. And, and when we read together in community and we read the, the real Bible, the holistic Bible, the uncluttered Bible, these gifts start to emerge. So next week, we're going to talk about what's, what are the undiscovered gifts in the library that is, that is the Bible. And then, as I said, the third week, we'll talk about how all these books, all these undiscovered gifts, coming together to tell the most amazing story the world has ever known and why narrative theology is the best theology. And then we're going to talk about why this story is not just narrative, but it's unfinished, and you are actually called to be gospel players in the story that's the same story that's in the Bible. And this is the end game for the Bible, is inviting you into this story to live this story into our world. It's a new scene, it's a new stage, but it's the same story that's in the Bible, and that's where we're going to end up. So let's see if you have any questions about this form, this history of the Bible, and, and where we're going. Yes? Yeah, this is not really controversial. I mean, it really isn't. It's the history of the Bible. And I would say um, they know it, but, but nobody, the thing is, nobody has taken on the challenge of saying, look, this is what the Bible was. Our Bibles don't have to be the way they are in the modern world. Somebody else made choices way after the fact that made our Bible what it is today. Those were not inspired choices. Those were just historical choices by people. And so we have the choice to make the Bible into what we want it to be. I mean, think about it. Before the printing press, there were these gorgeous illuminated manuscripts in the Middle Ages. People doing amazing artwork. I mean, gold leaf. They were making the pages purple, the writing gold. It was incredible artwork filled with symbolism. That was a cultural expression of the Bible. We've moved to a modern reference edition. It doesn't have to be either one. We can decide what the Bible is. It's God's gift to us, and he didn't mandate one form. So I say, let's do a form that's usable, that people actually engage. That's what we're trying to do. I don't know if that's what you meant. But yeah, I think it's not controversial. Really, it's just unknown to many people. Yes? We are. You, get a, you have a New Testament. We have a book called The Covenant History, which is the whole story from Genesis through Kings, Samuel Kings. And then we have a book of the prophets. And then we have a book of the writings, which is the ancient three-part Old Testament that Jesus knew. This was what the Jewish Bible was before it went into its Greek translation and they divided it into four parts. So yeah, we have a whole Bible. What's that? 
Yeah, the covenant history and the prophets are available. The writings we're still working on. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, she was asking if this is available in the whole Bible. And we've, we've got the whole Bible in this natural literary form. Yes, back here. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, that's another, another major factor that's happened in the modern period, right? It's the same period that brought us individualism in culture, right? We think of our spiritual lives as individual things between me and God. And this is an innovation also of the modern period, because historically God's people were preeminently known as a people in community. Most of the words you in the New Testament are plural. It's amazing. They're written to communities of people living their life before God together, We read those. I mean, I grew up, I'm just the same. I'm like anybody else. When I read you in the Bible, I tend to read it as me, as a separate individual. So slowing down, saying, look, I don't need a nanosecond, you know, verse of the day. What I need is to just relax, take my time, and just read the scriptures. I don't have to apply every single verse to my life. Just read it, be immersed in it, marinate in it. And it will find its application. It will, trust me. But we just got to get back to slow reading. Yeah. Between what happens between the two groups? I mean, uh, these kinds of ways of yeah, reading? Like yeah, I think, I mean, the number of studies that have been done on how people are using the Bible, that's well established. This program is so new. What we have is anecdotal information. We don't have good studies. I'm part of a new institute at Biblica, and that's one of the things we want to do. Is like, okay, when people go through this new way of reading together in book clubs and the whole deal, what does that do? How does that change really what's happening? And so that's, that's, you're exactly right. That's the research we need to do. We know the other one is failing because what people are doing with the Bible is referencing things, oftentimes demonstrably out of context, and trying to put together, quote, Bible doctrine or Bible teaching by stringing together a bunch of verses about the Bible. This way of doing Bible study never existed before the chapter and verse Bible came into existence. Yeah. Yeah. It is different in different parts of the world. I have a friend who's a translator in Africa, and she says... In this culture, so few people can read. We come together and we listen to audio presentations of the Bible in, in, a, in a vernacular translation, and we experience together evenings when the community comes together. And that's what they do with the Bible all the time. So we're translating this, this books of the Bible into Spanish, Portuguese, Chinese. We're, we're doing it in the language of the world, and this community Bible experience is a global phenomena. But you're right. There's a really important point there, that translation matters, because... Like, for instance, one of the things we're going to learn next week is that one of the ways ancient books were built in an oral society, how would you show that a new structure was there? You're not handing out copies of your books. You can't see the numbers or anything like that. What they did is repeat phrases. So when you come across a repeated phrase in Scripture within one book, that marks a literary scene. That's where a new section was begin. So when Jesus says, one of the books we'll look at is Matthew, when he says... um, Jesus brought his disciples together, and then it says, these are all the things that Jesus said. That phrase, it occurs five times, 
not an insignificant number in a book written to Jews. That's how you mark the seams. In the book of Acts, it's the repeated phrase, the word of God continued to grow and flourish. So what you do is you look for these repeated phrases. That's how oral societies structured their books. So when you do that, you start finding the natural chapters in books. Matthew has five. Luke has six. I mean, Luke has three. The book of Acts has six. And so you can find the natural structures of books. And translation matters because if you don't translate those phrases somewhat closely together, then you can miss those. So, so you need accuracy. I don't know that literal is always the right word, but accuracy will tell you that these are where the phrases are that you structure your books on. Um, in English, we own the copyright to the NIV, so that's kind of our preferred translation here in English. Um, we also have the, the simplified NIV, the NIRV, but we do languages all around the world. We, like I mentioned, Spanish and Portuguese and all these other languages. So um, we're actually excited because my feeling is, yeah, okay, I'm a biblical guy. We own the NIV, but I think people, it's a helpful thing to read lots of different kinds of translations. We're excited that Crossway recently came out based on our idea in the books of the Bible, came out with a reader's edition of the ESV. They did the same thing. They took out those chapter and verse numbers so you can read it. Single column, you start to see the book in the form it's supposed to be. And I'm like, more power to you. I hope this spreads through every translation. So I don't want to hold you over. I'm probably past my time. So thank you and we'll see you next week.